Welcome to Sounds Like, the podcast brought to you by the horse's mouth. We explore how brands connect with their audiences through audio, hosting conversations between industry leaders and creators who have consistently forged authentic relationships with their clients and communities. No fluff, no filter, straight from the horse's mouth. Today we are so happy and very lucky to speak to two extraordinary communicators working to make real-world impact in the real world, Gail Galley and Holly Gordon. Gail's a campaigner for the Global Goals, founder of Project Everyone and Project 17, running these two campaign units in pursuit of a better world, using creativity to condition the environment for change to happen. She's currently working from her cabin in the town of Bath in Somerset, UK previously based in London. Holly is the Chief Impact Officer of Participant, a film financing and production company in Hollywood, founded with a mission-driven focus of telling stories that can advance positive social change in the world. Her job's not to make the films, but to make the films make a difference. She's also very happy to be living in LA in sunny California. Hello and welcome. Hi. Thanks for having us. So nice to be here. How are you both today? Really well. Super well. Yeah, you guys have the advantage because you can tell me how the day was. My day is just beginning. So um, so everything's looking bright and shiny here in LA. Oh, it's really weird, isn't it, when we talk, Holly, because um, we, we have this standing call that is tends to be at a five o'clock UK time which normal is, what, nine o'clock LA time? Yep. Is it? And uh, and so I'm always like yawning and like oh, coming off a big day. And these guys are like, morning, and it's right. sunny. I've got my coffee and, like, and Gail's oh. got her wine. <laughs> <laughs> and it just really kind of um, re-emphasizes, especially in the winter, no, like to me anyway, dark, cold, yeah. and uh, LA's sunny and morning. <laughs> it couldn't be more cliched. Yeah. <laughs> You two are working on something together at the moment. If we can talk a little bit about that, you've got a joint project that you're working on and then maybe we can just ask you to explain a little bit about your work, what you do, who you work with and your organizations. Holly, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. Um, We're working on a, um, we're contributing to a coalition called Imperative 21, which is a coalition of coalitions. Uh, of business leaders who are um, focused on resetting the economic system for justice, interdependence, and sort of stakeholder capitalism. So what does that mean in English? It means that the current economic system is not working. The mass inequity, uh, extractive practices are, um, are, are uh, inequity and extractive practices are not sustainable. And in order to change something that's that big and overwhelming, you have to start with changing people's mindset about things like, I must have more, moving them to thinking, oh, I have enough. More is not always better. Um, that I'm independently going to get ahead versus actually, if my success is not linked to the success of the people around me in my community, then I have no success because we're interdependent. So um, what I love about how Gail and I met is that this coalition of coalitions really lent into it around this time last year, a very... Um, organic kind of build of calling people into the conversation with these global calls that they set up and where they were talking about their vision for the future. 
And so, you know, it was a very chat heavy Zoom environment, if you will. And I feel as though everything that Gail said in the chat, I was like, oh my gosh, plus one to Gail. Oh yes, plus one. And then I Googled her on the side and I was like, I have to know this woman. And so <laughs> lo and behold, a year later, here we are. Every week I get to be with Gail. So it's been great. Oh, likewise. But also the mad thing, don't you think, is that most people on that, both the core team, the few coalition groups, and then the wider lot, we've never met. You know, this thing has come about in the last 12, 14 months, well, actually 18 months now, right? And I think, Holly, you may know a few people because of the US camp, but the majority of us have not met each other. And yet we've had this intense kind of alignment of values and mission and yeah as you say quite a lot of chat it means quite a lot of time spent building these coalitions um and so i mean i just can't wait to meet you holly i've never met holly i know it's true i can't wait to actually meet you and cleo and like the whole gang it's true because it does feel as though we've known each other forever and i think that's what can happen when you are really deeply values aligned with other people and you're connecting around a shared sense of purpose and a shared goal i, I you know i go to england a lot my family's all there and i've literally been in my itinerary okay so when can i see gail because we're gonna have to go for a walk or you know whatever it is <laughs> sure don't don't you rush i'm gonna come when i come to la <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so what will Imperative 21 do? What's going to happen with it? Is it going to go out to business leaders? Is it going to be for the general public? Gail, do you know? Is there, is there a plan? Yeah, there's a plan of sorts in that um, I'm going to par- I mean, I'm going to steal something Holly t- told me about her theory of change, which is you need to make content and then give people tools and then you need distribution. And the incredible thing about the Imperative 21 coalition team of stewards uh, and allies is that they're all like distributive nodes towards a company the b-lab system you know the b-lab team in their area in their country so we've been making some assets that we launched last year and we and we called it the reset campaign and we work another glorious member of this coalition is an organization called amplifier who are um, a u.s-based like artivism outfit they do the fantastic kind of imagery that you tend to see on marches you know, they did we the peoples in reaction to the to the situation over there a couple of years ago with uh with the president um so we, we between us made some really great assets and then we have these amazing company leaders from the b team and the b lab kind of organizations and, and, and a wider distributive network to put those assets through and our our task for this year is that was the launch how do we now get that deepened so that we create genuine kind of moving experiences where you you experience the content rather than it just kind of happened and you did or didn't catch it and then it's backed up by tools with these amazing stewarding organizations that can help take your organization from a to b because like it's all very well to say capitalism needs reforming even a ceo can say yep i totally back that and i really want to do that but then you're left with this gaping gap of how you know how do I do that and who's with me and then how do I stay at that and so so the whole system of Imperative 21 is meant to be there to inspire at the beginning and then take you through the distribution and then all the way down to tools for change so it's meant to be kind of a, a rolling kind of conversion program as it were to get us to a place where I think the strapline is one of the nicest I've ever worked with which is a, to create shared well-being on a healthy planet it's just a sort of nice way of expressing what there's lots of different phrases for people and planet and you know sustainable development is another one but i think shared well-being on a healthy planet is is a great thing for all of us to aim at i like it i'll take it great that's converted banked <laughs> tell us what else you're up to go 
I think like a lot of the world, we're catching up on um, what didn't happen last year to an extent. Mm. So there was um, a whole heap of climate action work, partnerships, events that were um, being planned for what was called the super year. 2020 was meant to be this sort of climate super year because you had the COP, the biodiversity conference and also the ocean conference, all meant to be signing, you know, improving treaties, none of which happened. So we're kind of catching up to try and get those back on track. Um, and also to, uh, creatively trying to use our powers and distribution networks to just lift the mood away from COVID and towards climate optimism because yeah. people are so down and stressed and whether you're um, under it because you are financially pressured or whether you're under it because your mental health is challenged, people I feel are not there in terms of going, yay, let's all pull together and really like one last mile for the climate. But that's what needs to happen if these um, conferences are to be reinstated, especially in these strange, I think it's a hybrid year again, right? I don't think, although, you know, the UK is vaccinating great, like we were saying, in most of the world, vaccines are not equitably distributed at all yet. Mm -hmm. And waves are coming, you know, third waves, new lockdowns. So we're up against a kind of challenging sort of landscape and an emotional kind of not a barrier it's understandable people are still reeling from the pandemic we're still in it so my my real focus for project everyone and the goals at the moment is how do we move people in an appropriate fashion to look beyond the pandemic and to focus again in on climate because it's at the heart of shared well-being on a healthy planet you know you, you need the healthy planet bit to, to distribute the well-being yeah environmental optimism is a lovely term and chuck in the concept of urgent, and that's pretty much it. Yep, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to be a, an, an urgent climate optimist. Right. And also the Ken Robinson thing, the Imagine If was a recent project. Ah, uh, that was, yeah, so that's just launched. Uh, Holly, I didn't get to talk to you about this, I don't think. So I, I knew Sir Ken Robinson. He was an amazing um, speaker, visionary, human, and he passed last yeah. year really suddenly. And he. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he really quickly. So, I mean, most people who knew him found out he was dead as opposed to found out he was ill. Oh. Yeah, awful. And uh, and his last kind of wish to his daughter, who I also know, was um, please carry the work on, you know, please finish my book, please launch the foundation that we've been planning. Um, mm. And so she asked, could I help? So that's like aside from climate completely, though, Ken, Ken was actually a huge climate um activist and a vegan mm. little known so we just launched a day uh, of content in in honor of his uh, birthday on march the 4th oh great and it's called imagine if and the premise of it all was let's we need to think differently yeah. to solve these challenges whatever your challenge is you need to think differently so we had some wonderful people responding to the provocation of imagine if we had like quite a few thousand people tuning in live which is is a good uh, result in these days and now the work is on to build that into a foundation to really support people who can think differently just thinking about the two things you mentioned uh gail just a climate optimism and imagine if those two things go together and it's really at the heart of it that i think what we're we're trying to do in our work every day which is to stimulate people to imagine differently um, and to tell stories that help people connect with possibility and help them see how it is in all of our individual power to begin to imagine and lean into the future that we want. And I can be an optimist when I know that the conversations are happening around um, reimagining, around the fact that almost every sort of operational system that we've been using is not a long-term solve, it's been a short-term solve. And when I can think about a future where we look back on this sort of 
arguably 150 to 500 years of sort of mass industrialization and say, God, what were we doing? What were we thinking? Stealing from the earth and not giving back to the earth, you know, fighting with each other as opposed to understanding that collectively we can we can we can live, you know, prosperously and in harmony. Um, so that's really the work of this. I think that's the work of this generation is imagining all those new systems and structures. And really helping people stick with that as well, I think, because it's you, it's the journey we're on, isn't it, Holly, with, with the Culture Coalition from Imperative 21. Yeah. You need to start with the inspiring bit that helps you imagine differently, and then you need to find ways of catching that and sustaining it. Yeah. But right at its heart, you still... I mean, you interesting on the, on the Imagine If day, um, a few... Ken lived in LA actually for the last 20 years, I think. And then he just moved back to England when he got sick. But um, So he has he has like this funny set of people around him. He has celebrity people. He has Ted mm. because he's the biggest ever right. TED talk. Ted he also guy, has yeah. um, educationists and policy people. But in the weird Kenosphere, um, Hugh Jackman was a friend. And he mm. answered the provocation, imagine if, with such a simple thing, but it's really stayed with me, which is imagine if we all were part of the same family, how would we act? Yeah. You know, and and then imagine if you extend that concept to the animals and to nature. <laughs> well, you wouldn't. You might be pissed off with someone, but you wouldn't go and chop it down. You know, you, you wouldn't dream of um, you know extracting horrific um, unfair labour from your cousin. You know, and, and 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 if you did, your grandma would come in and tell you to stop it. And <laughs> exactly. And I just love. It was such a simple, simple, simple piece that he said. But you know, there's a power in that of just opening up the because we have to find ways of opening up our minds and getting out of our habits i mean that's however worthy my work can be i've still got a new iphone you know and i know better than most what that took and it's not good but i still am not going to trade it down you know so we all need we all i told you the other day holly about the data impact of um you know gifts and you went oh my god don't tell me i can't even send those and i'm like well not at the moment (laughs) because they're so you know because the internet is generally still so carbon intensive but people are to your um hope and optimism people are imagining that again and differently at scale and speed and that's what that's that's what i get off on with my work is that can i can i hurry people up i'm not the one who's going to solve it but i might be able to hurry it along by inspiring the take up and also connecting the people who because they've met can now go further even faster for sure and and holly what's your good news then what are you up to at the moment at participant so we've got a We've got really good breaking news from Participant, uh, which is that two of our films from the last year were nominated for for multiple Oscars, Academy Awards. So uh, the one, um, uh, one is a documentary and one is a feature uh, narrative film, um, Judas and the Black Messiah, which uh, is a Warner Brothers picture and tells the story of a... um, 1960s and 70s activist in the United States by the name of Fred Hampton, who was a Black Panther. And uh, it tells, you know, it it really speaks to this idea of it matters who tells, you know, it matters where you get your history. Because as a child, any reference to the Black Panther in the history books that I read was about a sort of terrorist organization, um, an organization that was armed and, and, and creating havoc during what was otherwise a peaceful civil rights movement and a sort of contrast approach to the way Martin Luther King um, uh, forwarded change. Um, and what you realize uh, when through the, through the lens of the story that, uh, that the director Shaka King tells in the Black Panther, in, in Judith and the Black Messiah, is that 
Uh, the Black Panthers were a community organization that was trying to feed the first breakfast program ever um, created that was ultimately taken up by the federal government. Um, health and community health programs that were otherwise not funded. These were people who were fighting for the integrity of their community um, and ultimately were gunned down by their government. And so as a you know, middle-aged white woman watching this film, uh, we have a legacy of slavery in our country that is, that's it, been there all the time, but that in order for us to progress as a country, we, we have to reckon with. It was like a toxic seed that was planted when we started this country. And everything subsequently has been built on that toxic seed. And so unless you start to understand what that has wrought, writ large, now so visible with COVID in terms of the numbers of people who are dying and where they're dying, you can't actually build because there was inequity built in our system. And so uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is a sort of slap in the cross in the face that most African-Americans don't need. Um, but as a white woman to say, oh, the history, I felt betrayed, honestly, deep betrayal from my teachers and forever wrote the history books because I'm a, I'm a very trusting person. So if I read it, I'm like, oh, that must be true, right? And so it's a, in terms of mindset shift, you have to start being open to the fact that everything you believe, um, including that more is better, uh, is, is in question today, right? That we actually have to look at the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell each other about, um, about fundamentals in a way that I think is really interesting. So the second film that was nominated is a film called Collective. Um, and it's uh, directed by Alex Nanau, and it tells the story of a Romanian healthcare crisis. There was a, um, there was a, uh, you may have heard of a bar fire um, about ten years ago in Romania, where a bunch of young people were trapped in a. Do, there was a pyrotechnic problem, that, yeah. the big fire, the, right? And um, and for those who did escape, some many of them were burned. Um, and they were sent to Romanian hospitals. And what unfolds is a sort of investigative drama um, led by journalists who, who were asking the question, why did so many survivors ultimately die of their wounds? And it turns out that there was a multi-level corruption um, within the healthcare system that had to do with um, the disinfectant that was used in the hospitals. Um, but it's a can't turn away minute by minute um, uh, investigative journey um, of discovery and that goes all the way to the top level of government. And so given the healthcare crisis that we've lived through um, globally this year and the public health systems and how they're really showing us um, that they're in need of deep investment, um, layer corruption on there and you really have a very timely story. So I recommend them both. Wow, I haven't, I haven't gotten to know that one. That sounds also amazing. Yeah. And you can you can get that in the UK. Back on my topic, as you keep hearing me talk about this new Adam Curtis series. So he covers both of those things. He and But the, the Black Panther, uh, the episode around race particularly, I think is episode number two in the series. And, and it is, again, like you, eye-opening. There's so many events I distantly remember, either as a child seeing them on the news or actually reading about them in history. And then you realise that that is not how it was. You know, what the news read, especially in England, you know, today some dreadful thing happened over there that we had nothing to do with. That's basically the implication. But then Adam Curtis will picks it apart and exposes what was going on. And it's really mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. But we need to reckon, like you say, Holly, we need to reckon with it. Otherwise, we can't, we can't move forward. How can you expect people to change if they don't even know? 
Absolutely, and with communication as fragmented as it's become today, right? which stories, which news, which reporting, which communication can you believe, which one's funded by what, who's telling you the story, is there an agenda behind it? pick up a newspaper and you know do you don't really know whether it's an opinion or whether it's a fact well so. like at the moment and again relevant because you and i are about to have our vaccines mike you know there's this hoo-ha going on in real time about many eu countries have suspended the astrazeneca vaccine because they are saying it may cause blood clots but all the scientists are saying it, there's absolutely no way it causes blood clots but then astrazeneca and the eu had already fallen out because astrazeneca didn't deliver the volume <laughs> they wanted because they'd given it to the british and other people as in there's a brexit thing going on and then and i'm now beginning to read the, the news and the science going i don't know what to believe <laughs> because both are completely plausible to me uh, you know at, at the same time it's really it's these are difficult times to to form an, your own opinion right about history about current affairs about what's going to work in the future oh there's one other thing um that we were thinking about which is what i've been thinking about anyway is this the difference between communication to get, you know, to reach an audience and, and potentially even to move an audience versus what you both appear to be doing um, or, you know, working as your very best and hardest to do, which is to use communication to reach people to then create some form of action, to create some form of impact. You know, so it's not just what's now in my head, it's now what's in my head, so what am I going to do next? How does that work? We've been talking about this at Imperative 21 um, and, and defining it as the difference between narrative change communication and strategic communication. So narrative change communication, and I would say Gail and I are actually both in the business of doing both. Um, and one's a long-term messy game, very, very messy, right? One is narr narratives are the stories that we just believe to be truthful. So they're the stories that you've heard a hundred times, right? And they've been oft repeated. So um, they, um, you've read them, they've been repeated, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, whereas strategic communication, and so they, they actually frame your belief system about what is and what isn't um, versus strategic communications is linked, can be linked to that narrative belief system, but it's actually designed to make you do something in the moment, right? And so it propels you from, the, uh, an understanding to an action. And you need both because in order for us to say, for example, design for sustainability, we have to change our narratives, which is like, there's enough nature for us to take from it forever into there's not enough nature for us to take for it, from it forever. And the strategic communication would be, so make a compost, right? But if you start with make a compost without changing that overarching thing, you can't, we can't change the world by one action, you know, one different call to action depending on the day you actually have to we have to we have to co-design all those changes of behavior and in order to get to a place where we co-design them we actually have to sh to create the demand problem to be different so if there's not enough um, earth for us to take from it is there enough not enough resources for us to take forever then i'm in i'm in the problem statement with everybody else in the world and i'm in my own life trying to say okay how might i live differently because I can't continue to extract in this sort of willy-nilly way. Yeah. And when it gets really complicated, I think, is when there's conflicting narratives, both of which are true. So in the climate space, you know, there is a whole generation. Yes. Not us, but definitely, I'd say, anyone under the age of 30, even 40 at the moment, 
who from their waking memory have known there's a problem and a crisis and it's only been getting worse and basically we're fucked. That's the, that's the sort of truth that they have lived with. And that's not wrong. But at the same time, we do have an opportunity. This is the new narrative we need to um, put alongside that without denying that one, which wouldn't be credible because we have extracted and we have you know, ruined a lot of things. The new narrative is also we do now have the technology and the you know the knowledge and the and the money there's enough money to go around there are enough resources to go around we just have to do a pretty urgent reframe and a reset of how we use them and it's really hard to uh, to work out which lane you're going to play in because i think it's very hard as one org to play both lanes so i always think of it as like the work i do is not i call it doom comms the the kind of but we all know who that might refer to but there's a role for doom comms because sometimes you need a doom communication to shake you know the head of BlackRock into thinking like shit. <laughs> okay, I need to I need to give up something. I need to change something. But equally, too much doom comes and no one's going to act. They're just going to put their head in a you know in their hands and and run away. And or or just think okay, I've only got twenty years left. Let's party. And it gets worse. So you have to balance the yes, we can change it, urgent optimist, um, with the doom com landscape. And that just requires like a level of communicative collaboration that I'm. Um, that I think is actually beginning to happen on the climate scene, actually, but it's not usual. Normally it's like, no, I'm doing this, no, you're doing this, and no, actually development's more important. But what about gender? And a hang on, race just popped up. What about the planet? You know, there used to be this real tension, even as when I started working this five years ago, there were arguments between, you know, the gender crew and the planet crew around COP, I remember it in Paris, about which march was going to be the biggest march during UNGAP and who was being unfair by sort of trying to trump the other. And it's just crazy. I don't think those arguments happen now. I think there's a there's a sense in the do-good community that the only way to solve anyone's issue is if we all kind of uh, you know collaborate and and co-architect the narrative that is we need to make this better well it's interesting because you both come from careers in communication holly journalism right journalism yep television news yeah, so TV news and Gail and, and marketing and advertising. And, and, and so in a way, you do come from quite competitive fields. You know, the, the news news is always competitive, as is advertising, you know, and, and, and it's kind of the opposite that you're working on now. Yeah, I mean, I think as a marketer, you were always trained to try and work out what is the, you know, the USP, the unique selling proposition and the word being unique. And it had to be different and better than anybody else's. And then in advertising, you know, it was all about how do you kind of make something that's that's going you know, to stand out from anybody else. And then your metrics are always about winning. You know, there's nothing about I managed to shift the category. You know, it's absolutely not. It's like, did you sell more than anyone else? And these are the, I mean, I'm. I think I was never that comfortable with it and I was never a happier marketer than when I was at the BBC where you didn't feel, apart from when I ran Marketing for News, which was the, I was quite shocked by how competitive, even within the BBC, I mean, it always used to make me giggle that, you know, there was this hierarchy within BBC News where, you know, the ultimate was was the... Um, was like news night, but they would and they would really look down on the the nine o'clock crew as they were leaving the building. Like, and as for the one o'clock afternoon news, where they were, and then the, you get all the way down. Oh no, the Today program was at the other end. Was the the two kind of, and then Today and Newsnight were really competitive. And that's like just one organisation. But generally at the BBC, because if it's kind of purpose of, of you know educating and making the good popular and the popular good, there was a spirit of you know collaboration which which I definitely was my happy spot but I don't know I got a did you work in the UK Holly in news or in the US no I well I did actually have an amazing experience um 
doing the story about um, the uh, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire scandal. Oh, yeah. Yes. Wittick, the uh, film. The army major who coughed his way to coughed. a million pounds. Love it. One yeah. of my favorite life experiences was doing that story, but for my ah. American uh, uh, primetime um, uh, live, which was the one of the programs that I worked for for a time. Um, so no, I never worked for, worked in the UK as an employer, but I, I, I came for stories and things. Um, but ABC was the same. I was at ABC News for my whole career. And um, it was the same where there was a sort of pecking order for the television programs. But interestingly, that pecking order changed over time. So when I began, it was Peter Jennings and the evening news broadcast that reached I think, you know, over 10 to 12 million people every night who sat down and watched the news. And by the time I ended, I left ABC 12 years later. It was Good Morning America, which was the primary news program um, because the viewership had changed so much. And, you know, in our in the estates, the O.J. Simpson trial was really a game changing moment for the penetration of news um, moving from the sort of three evening anchormen who 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 reached you know a huge proportion of the United States with their wisdom every night into a much more diversified landscape with the advent of CNN and and gavel to gavel to gavel coverage. If you remember, O.J. Simpson was the first case that was gavel to gavel coverage, and so people just it became a um, a constant stream of information, which then of course five years later exploded into internet access to news and information. Um, and I would say the sort of the what I the the I was always competing in the incremental. Um, in news, like you were always competing in the incremental. So did I get the booking before the Today Show? Right? Did I get the morning? My, did my morning chat show have the the right guest before the other morning chat shows? Yeah. Spent a lot. Uh, the scoop, yeah. right? The human being. I mean, I was fighting for human beings, and I won't <laughs> tell you some of those stories. They don't make me proud. The, the ends to which I went to make sure human beings were with me at four a.m. and not with my competitors <laughs> at four a.m., um, which is a which is an unfriendly time to be fighting for a human being. I might for add. Sure. Um, so it was always the fight for this to get the story first, right? But I would say journalists have in common, I believe, a desire to make the world a better place. You don't go into journalism for money. You go mm -hmm. because you think that telling stories can actually have an impact on people. And so ironically, as my career progressed, the ability for one journalism organization to actually made the, make the world a better place got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. The power of one story got less and less and less and less potent. And so my career has been trying to um, look for new ways to find platforms and create stories that many people can rally around towards the same end, which is to make the world a better place. And so now sitting at a, you know, culture drives beliefs, culture, uh, beliefs drive behavior. And so I'm now sitting inside a, a company that thank goodness for the founder was, was, you know, that you can tell a million Hollywood stories, but we only tell stories that have some kind of social component to them. And sometimes they're really direct action, like an inconvenient truth where it's clear, like, oh gosh, to, to parrot Gale, we're fucked. Um, we, you know, and that was 15 years ago. And oh my goodness, what, how far we've come and how far we have to go. But that was a real wake up call of really direct communication to something that is less um, direct, like the movie Wonder, which we made, which is really about compassion and kindness. Um, and we could all as parents learn a lot from that story about how to treat each other. So, um, so, you know, I'm still in this space of trying to use story to influence people. Um, 
and the tools have just changed. And ironically, the interconnectedness of the world means that Gail and I work together every week, even though she's in Bath and I'm in LA. But the interconnection of the world and the and the and the and the technology that's allowed that to to happen is also the reason that our stories are it's much harder to penetrate the public consciousness, which leads me back to Imperative Twenty One, actually, Mike, and um, and why a business coalition makes sense in today's marketplace is because as we move forward in the world, we're 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 destined to trust the people we know more than the people we don't know. So in the past, like news media has been a source of credible information for people. But now people are like, I don't know what to believe, but I can believe my boss and I can believe my neighbor. And so um, I think it's ironic being a journalist who spent many, many years um, holding businesses accountable for their bad acts to now be someone who is so invested in business as a force for good because people, it's a distribution system for ideas that people can trust and rally around. And businesses really influence the lives of hundreds of millions of people all around the world. And so if they take the lead in trying to solve the intractable problems that they've helped to create, um, that for me is a way that we can accelerate things a bit. So you say that as employers are trusted, your boss is trusted or your manager is trusted. Where's that data from? How do we know that? An Edelman report that's like three weeks old. Right. Um, that it, and it's a it's a killer number. I'm going to get it wrong, but something like seventy two percent people of people rate their their employer as their most trusted source for news and information. Wow. Okay. I guess it's the it's like the young people's equivalent of school, isn't it? Yeah. Whether a young person likes school or not, they would they believe what the teacher says. Like you were saying about race, Holly, about, you know, if your teacher yeah, you told believe. you that the Black Panthers were terrorists, you believed them. And if a head teacher says this is how the world is to anyone in a, in a primary or secondary school, they're going to go, OK, probably more than their parents telling them. You know, that there's got this sort Definitely of in my house. third party. Yeah, I was going to say, yes. how many of you have had a child come home and say, Mom, that's not what my teacher says? <laughs> Or with my rebellious eight-year-old, the only way I can get her to do anything really is to threaten that uh, it's just how it is because I'll have to tell Mrs. Hammonds about that and she's not going to like that. And that, that is the only authority I can kind of invoke. Mrs. Hammonds is a very sweet woman, but it's just the, the role. That's right. And so I think then, then you just trans so we grow up with that. We all need, as human beings, as babies, from, from babies up, we all look to be led, right? We all look to be le led and held in some sort of truth. And whether it's for you then religion or, you know, whether it's... Uh, your your employer or whether it's your teacher you know we all need some kind of guidance so i think i, I can i can totally I, I saw that edelman figure and i totally kind of understood it it makes sense but it but for those of us who are the age that we all are if you told us in our 20s that our employers would be our most trusted source for news and information we would think you were crazy yeah I think in this country, we've still got a little bit of BBC in us, haven't we? We, Unlike, I think, almost anywhere else in the world, we do have, a, in, I mean, even it's cracking, but in theory, an independent source of yeah. news, which I think in, in this country, that still comes like really high up. Who do you trust? And there are lots of journalists who are working in those trades who would still say, but Holly, I'm still reporting the truth. The problem is that truth has become truthy. You know, we have a we have it, 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 there's an argument what who the um, Kellyanne Conway's famous quote, which was something like um, the the alternative facts. Yes. Right. Perfect. Um, right. And, and I have two kids who are teenagers and they literally say, well, where did you read that? And my teenager one says to teenager two and the teenager two says, well, this outlet. Well, you better counterbalance by reading over here. And so they're yeah, they're like, well, that's not an accurate 
source. But isn't this I'm so something I'm really fascinated by. I'd love to know what you think of this, Holly. In the Oprah interview, in which we won't, you know, dwell for too long, but Oprah used the phrase to Meghan, how do you think the royal family will hear today hearing your truth? And it was like it was, I can't work out. I'm, the thing I'm fascinated by is that, is that acknowledging that Meghan was, uh, is perhaps not speaking the truth, or is it Oprah's saying your truth is as valid as their truth? But I'd never heard that phrase before, your truth. And now I think that's that's an extension of the kind of what is true. It's an extension of what I was taught in in about the Black Panthers. That was somebody's truth because it ended up in a history book. Sure. Right. But when you look at it from a different perspective, it's 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 a different truth. And and you can do this with anything. You can you can put a book in front of this camera. Right. A good one at that. Um, right. Ryan McKee. Um, <laughs> this is one of my props. Um, yeah, yeah. My other one yeah. is Barack Obama's uh-huh. Promised Land. Um, and Samantha Power's The Education of an Idea. No, so fantastic. I just have my inspiring books just at the ready here. But anyway, so the truth, the truth is that this is a cover, a book cover that has story on it. Right. But if you're standing mm-hmm. from a different perspective, yeah. the truth is that this is a book jacket with lots of little words you can't read. And so if you put someone in a court of law and say, what's your truth? What, what's on right. this book? And someone says, oh, a ton of little words that you can't read. The person who's looking at it from another perspective says, what is, are they blind? Can't they see it? And so, you know, what you, I think, and what we have to understand as an interconnected community is that not only do we all have individual experiences of the world, but there are many sides to a, to a story, if I may. Right. And so it is actually the wisdom comes in not believing that your side is the only side, but in believing that someone else actually has a very skinny idea of what this is. Right. Yours is fat. There's a skinny. And so the wisdom of knowing this whole book is to actually ask for in uh, from, for contributions from people who are on all sides of it. And that, to me, is what's tricky about leading this generation in this moment in time is that and that goes back to coalition building, which is that. To in order to seek the insights of everyone who's sitting from every perspective, man, that takes time. Ooh, that's not linear. Oh, that's going to be some difficult conversations. It's so much easier to work in in hierarchical power structures where dominant ideas um, are, are 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 the ones that you will follow. Because once you crack that dominance, uh, a, a, a whole different conversations are are necessary. But I think there's a link there to why businesses are critical to the change versus governments, because governments are need to be elected and elections increasingly need to be um, backed up on social media. Social media does not tolerate, famously, and you know, we've just seen it in the US election and many others, does not tolerate the, the, the ability to listen to many perspectives and to come to a consensus. It, 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 tolerate, it, it leans you into polemics, you know, like, are you pro or anti? And if you're anti, I'm going to show you more anti stuff until you're furious. You know, and if you're pro, let's kind of like kill everyone who's not with us. It gets so extreme. Whereas businesses have to appeal to millions of customers all the time. And so they are constantly in the business of iteration and researching. And they're just, they find positions that are mainstream. Yeah. And I think that because they get that mentality, they can weigh up the impact of going into a region or a product category. And they can weigh up the many kind of different implications and forge a strategy ahead that is the least damaging and the most consensus building. 
and and also I think the difference with them and politicians is they're longer term. In the goals work, we found that you know you say to a business it's a 15 year framework, and they're going only 15. Like oh, we have one for 50 years. Like okay, let's let's ratchet back. Whereas governments are three, four, often two. <laughs> yeah, you know these are, they are not long term planners. And right, they're thinking about election cycles, not about not but generational yeah well and i've actually heard that also sometimes the other way which is that businesses you know we have been hearing the Mm. criticism of businesses being quarter by quarter planners right and we are trying to move away from that but i think that businesses because they have the they have resources to invest in long-term R&D. They're seeing the writing on the world yes. that their current practices are going to ruin their businesses. So I'd love to think this all is a humanistic, suddenly a humanistic approach to what to to, to the uh, from the business world. And by the way, every every business is run by a human. And I've been hearing more and more yeah. reports of CEOs whose children are saying to them, like, "Come on, what's your legacy going to be? Are you going to be the one that turns the tide?" So that 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 group of young people who've grown up knowing that the planet is in danger is having now informed conversations with their mostly fathers who are at the are at the helm of power. And I think that that's a very powerful dynamic for the change that um, we seek to make. I also just want to build something. Just uh, I, I want to. Um, talk a bit about social media because, you know, social media, what's so interesting about, say, for Twitter is that in its early stages, it was the reason that the the the, the, the explosion of, of platforms on which people could tell the story was the reason that the hierarchical power structures and the sort of began to crack because all of these people who'd been left out of conversations were no longer being disintermediated by people controlling conversations. So the very... Um, so, for example, a Me Too type experience. It wasn't that women were not being Me Tooed for generations. It's just that they could suddenly out the, the 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 perpetrator in a way that was was not managed by anyone. And so, these tools are both are are tools of liberation, and more and more, they're also tools of destruction. And so, I'm super interested to see how we reckon with these powerful artificial intelligence driven tools. Our AI is the way we're going to create a more regenerative future in terms of how we're going to co-design with nature and use build organic materials from scratch, right? But does that mean we build human beings? Maybe. Like that's creepy. So it's you know, beyond meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the non-meat burgers. Right? The, yeah. the, 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 the growth of of, of the non-meat burgers, which are the future, because why should we be slaughtering cap- cattle all around the world? It's it's barbaric. This is when I say, like, we might look back on this time and say barbarism, right? But what if we're growing meat in a lab? What is the existential question around this, the sanctity of biological materials? So we have a lot to sort out here. Um, and it's it's both exciting <laughs> and which is why everyone, we need everyone working on it, because none of us are going to have all the answers for sure. Ooh. That's I was right. reading a really lovely piece by Tim Berners-Lee, you know, the in- inventor of the World Wide Web. He's he's like your Twitter example, Holly. There, there you go. Like he invented this thing to be beautiful. And he said in the early days it was really beautiful. You know, you could find people who were like you that you've never found before and you could, you know, learn from each other and communicate and not be alone. And, if, and actually my prop book is called The Trust Manifesto, written by Damien Bradfield, who is president of WeTransfer. But he, he used this great analogy of the early days of the internet were like... Bel Air, right? Beverly Hills. Everyone wanted to be there. It was amazing. Every street you found on the internet was amazing. And now we've just filled it up with crap and neglected it. And it's it's like the worst area of like downtown that no one wants to go to. And and he and Berners Lee's the same. It's like we need to get it back. 
because it could still be our salvation. Like it could still be beautiful. You know, for every trolling on social media, some suicidal child has found a friend that meant that they got through their problem. You know, someone being bullied has found a connection. And so, you know, I no, I hope we can have both hands. Surely just because we have AI doesn't mean we're going to do ourselves out of a job as a human. But let's see. I always wonder about the motivation. You know, I fundamentally believe that 97% of human beings are good, like just fundamentally wanting the right things. And I'm so always overwhelmed by the power of that 3%, the power of destruction, the power of greed, the power of corruption, the power of... And part of it is that if you're open to many op options for what the future might look like, or if, you're, if you have a sort of... Um, gently invested view that's positive, you're less potentially motivated than than the those who are hell-bent on, on power, corruption, et cetera. So I'm always sort of, um, you know, Goal Rising was built on this idea, the, the campaign that I, I um, helped to lead before coming to participant was built on this, on this, on the early, early storytelling across the internet, which is if we could find other people who believed in the power of girls' education to transform their communities, and we gave them world-class tools to do that work in their community themselves, we could, it was like plant all these flowers of, of, of emancipation around the world. And, and, and that's what Imperative 21 is, is built on too. So I do believe that this sort of distributed model is the salvation, but, but, for, those, but for those bots, that are trying to make us hate each other, right? And they're super motivated, those bots, super motivated. Or even are they like, because I think, and, and if you can't overturn that, if, if the 3% are hell bent on keeping all the money, um, I think the pandemic might've helped us even shift that because the, the super kind of 3% that I know and love, uh, some, um, even they have been shocked by what a global shock does. Like what even I can't, fly to the Caribbean but I'm, I'm cool right I've, I have the private jet I have the and they're like no this yeah. is a global shock that is affecting everyone in the same way and I think they don't like that and so I think the the, the ground has been fertilized for your flowers to bloom Holly in the sense that they've realized it's bad for business it's even, even if you're a despot global shocks are bad for business because you can't yeah. live the life of privilege that you've dreamed of you're in the in the shtuk like everybody else so I feel like We've we've created the pandemic has given us a, a portal into the need to be different, even if you're winning at the moment. You you've it's been exposed that even that win is very shallow, and it could you could all fall away. I remember I remember when Tom Hanks got it, and uh, a, a satirist in the UK called Charlie Brooks did a very funny uh, piece about uh, COVID at the end of last year. But he was saying when Tom Hanks got it, it's like what? But he's like really nice and white and rich. He's got the COVID. That's that's not okay. That's really frightening. But I think there is something in that, you know, that the, the heads of all of these businesses, banks, funds, they've all been affected in the same way. So I, th I hope it's given them a different perspective to look at all the other issues and realize that we are invested, we are co-invested in the same yeah. system. So if the system is fundamentally rotten, even if you look like you're winning. And yeah, I was going to say, whether you're a winner or a loser, you're in the system. So once we start talking about individuals, you kind of lose the plot. You know, it's this, is that that actually the the richest they're benefiting more, obviously, but they're also a victim of the system. You know, the kind of wealth that's been accumulated over the last thirty years by individuals is so bananas. Like it's so crazy. Did you love my twenty-two, uh, Mike? I, I found the statistic: twenty-two men in the world own more than every woman in Africa put together. So they hold just twenty-two. It didn't even matter that they're men. Twenty-two individuals. 
own more money than the entire continent of Africa, all the women in Africa. And it's probably some of them are African males, because if you think about that continent, there's some rich guys there. But I mean, that is just mind blowing. And I, but I think until you realize it's giving going to come back and give you a problem, you know, it's going to come back and bite your ass, right? Because it's going to give you a global pandemic, or it's going to, it's going to give you a climate incident that is going to ground your plane. Sure. Then but I think that's what we've had. I feel like that has happened. The reality check. Yeah, the reality check that goes along, I think, with the stories that you need to tell to change people's minds. And in that storytelling, uh, something that really interests me, I saw a bit of footage of you, Holly, talking at the Skull World Forum about emotion and which emotions are the most powerful or have what different effects different emotions uh, that you generate in your audience may have. And uh, to quote you, you said, if you're trying to get someone to change, if you're trying to get someone to change the behavior forever, go for inspiration and hope every time. It's true. You talked about compassion being not very activating. Mm -hmm. No, compassion is a much more reflective emotion. So you feel compassion and then you reflect, but you don't necessarily do in a moment of compassion, but you have, you, 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 it, and I'm not suggesting that that's actually not vital to the human experience in making change because the feeling of compassion is the feeling of accept of, of connection um to something that's other than you right and so it's it's an it's an emotion that it might not be visible in its in its act action but it is active and it has created something we need more than ever which is a connection to someone else but i did i'll i'll, I'll go on since what you just said is actually quite controversial um you know, really hope and inspiration is like the most powerful of that. So um, uh, in context, if you want to make someone someone do something immediately, so not sort of change their trajectory forever, but if you want to make them take an action in the immediate, make them feel guilty, make them feel angry, right? Because those are emotions that you want to put a stop to. And so as human beings, you'll do anything. If I make you feel guilty, you will do a lot to make me stop feeling guilty. Or scared, I guess. Would scared be in there? Make me scared? Yes. Scared, angry, guilty. You know, that's a lot of what Donald Trump used. He used fear um, to make, to activate people, right? And, you know, it, depending on even your mindset, we also all, 50% of us come into the world feeling frightened as our feeling distrustful as our resting feeling and 50% come in feeling trustful as our resting feeling. And then if you understand that, you can understand things like conservatism versus liberalism, because it makes sense to be conservative if your affect in the world, if you're born just with that on the side of feeling just generally more distrustful, there's nothing wrong with you. But in order for us to make or order for those of us who are like, let's make lots of change to be successful, we have to actually speak to that distrust of uncertainty, you know, and, you know, I would argue we're better to have we're like kind of like the Supreme Court supposed to be like counterbalancing, you know, or our, our political parties, we're supposed to be counterbalancing. But if we just shout at each other and yell at each other and don't try to feel the compassion towards the needs of the other, whether that's a need for safety or a need for change, we, we you know, we're, we're just... We're destined to be at this stopping place, which is, is is where I feel we sometimes can get, especially in this country right now, politically for the shore, at an impasse. So how do we break through that impasse then? Listening? Yeah, gathering, listening, connecting, um, really stories. Stories. I mean, I, I, stories. That one... Um, 
Mike, I sent you about that Mac McCartney, the children's fire. Have you heard that, Holly? He's a, he's an amazing... It's very... I think the talk is longer than this, but you, you only need to get the first few bits. But he talks about how um, in elder tribes' times, they would... Um, they would, if they needed to kind of come together and decide something, they would they would light the fire and they would sit around it and then they would look around the fire and think, what do we need to to make the right decisions? And the first thing they would, so they would look to nature for guidance. And the first thing they would notice in nature was that there was a male-female balance. Otherwise, the species don't carry on. So they invited women to the fire. And then the next thing they saw from nature was that they would do anything to protect the next generation. Um, and so they lit, lit a children's fire. So the speech is called the children's fire. And all I ever need is that two lines of that thing to make me move me to somewhere that goes, OK, now I'm in the room of opening up to change and inspiration and like, yeah, I want to do whatever Mac's about to tell me because I, I love that story. It's so simple. It's really good. And I think in this proliferation of fact, which isn't fact at all, and I read about in the States and that election just gone when people were complaining that the election had been rigged and stolen and that Trump, pre the riot, but, you know, the Trump supporters were livid because, you know, their truth was that um, the election had been rigged because... That's good narrative change right there. 300 years of a free and fair democracy change and, and a shifted narrative in under under a year, right, from, from the president. Because all the other narratives that were going on in their socials and their friends were telling them that, yes, indeed, this is going to be rigged. And someone did a, a survey and showed how with every new fact you gave those people that contravened their belief. So, no, no, look, here, yeah, I have a printout of every polling station. I have CCTV footage that shows it wasn't rigged. They went deeper and deeper into their belief. You, well, you would say that because you're lying to me. That's and right. And so facts don't change no. people's behaviours. I always, I work, I do a lot of my work is with really clever scientific academic types mm. who've written fantastic papers proving that this or that is the right way to go or the, and, and the way ahead. But no one is being moved by that stuff. No. And certainly not the people who didn't believe it in the first place. And I think that I, oh, I heard a terrifying statistic about the average readership of an academic paper is 2.4. And if you take the author and their mum out of that, no one's reading. And these are, these are great papers, but they're not being moved. No one's elevate. No one's turning the, the draft into a story. So I think, how do we get out of here? To your question, Mike, is story, story, story every time. And Robert McKee, the storybook, you know, one of the great quotes from that is yeah. stories are the currency of human relationships, which is, you know, really what this is all about in the end is about building relationships. And then another lovely thing that he says in that book is in a world of lies and liars, an honest work of art is always an act of social responsibility. And that Holly, that's, a, that's our strap line. That's the Culture <laughs> Coalition strap line. That's where we should take it. That's right. And that's what we do every day at Participant, which is that we look to artists. So we're not thinking about issues. We're wondering what the artists are thinking because they will sh they will show us the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amen. On that note, on that Artistic urgent, note. optimistic note, I think we're going to wrap up our chat. Um, I've got so many more questions I would love to ask you. You never know. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Well, when Holly comes over, Mike, because you're not far from me. And Holly, where's your family? Cornwall, did you once say? Well, some in Cornwall and then some in uh, in in London, just outside London. And sure, Guildford. You're, you're orienting southwest, I'm yeah, feeling. Southwest, so maybe we can yeah. maybe we can meet <laughs> in Oxford. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Um, so just in case, this is what you do at the end of podcasts, apparently you ask, how can people find you on the internet or anywhere else, Holly? 
So you can find me on LinkedIn, Holly Green Gordon on LinkedIn. I'm and uh, and on Twitter, I think I'm Holly Gordon. So you can find me there too. But I'm not so active. Yeah, boringly, boringly, I'm the same. I'm on LinkedIn as Gail Galley, and then Twitter is at Gail Galley. But I'm much more reactive on LinkedIn. Yeah, me too. Great. And you're also project17.com and yep. project-everyone.org. Yeah, you can get me through that. And Holly, you'll be... Participant.com. Yeah, participant.com. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. That was really fun. Holly, thanks for joining us. That was really fun. Thanks, Mike. Sounds Like is a podcast brought to you by The Horse's Mouth sound loving brand building conversation starting audio evangelists on a mission to help brands build deeper relationships with the people who matter most their teams fans and customers thanks to our amazing audio producer alex kenning tech and everything in between jez gooden the show's theme music was written and produced by the magnificent will flisk advisors to the horse's mouth on all things marketing and content elliot who and steve keeney and i'm mike benson Thanks for listening. Find us at thehorsesmouth.co or wherever you listen to podcasts. The world's listening. Start the conversation.